Hey, everybody. Welcome to the fifth episode of Foreigners Talk American, the fantastic podcast where I, a lone American, will discuss something interesting about my country's culture with a group of my best foreign friends. With me today is a very diverse group. From Ireland, we got Gary. Hi, how are things? From New Zealand, we got Jonathan. You know, what's up? From South Korea, we got Andrew. Hi, Annyeong. And from San Francisco, which a lot of Americans consider a foreign country, uh, Tina's here. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Thanks for being on the show, Tina. Um, though you're not a foreigner, uh, what, which one of these guys' countries would you prefer to visit if you had the chance? I think I'd have to say New Zealand, even though they all seem like great places to go. I think New Zealand has the appeal of being like where Middle Earth is filmed or yeah, some, some Lord of the Rings things and the nature there is amazing. I do want to, I think the food in South Korea might be better, but pros and cons. That's, that's a good answer. And uh, in fact, Jonathan is actually half Hobbit. So it's, it's good that you have that interest in, in Lord of the Rings. But yeah, thanks for being on. And uh, the reason why I had Tina on the show today is because we're going to be talking about COVID-19. And Tina is actually a PhD student and a medical student. So she is probably more well-informed on this disease than uh, these three guys that have no experience on, on that whatsoever. But yeah, so COVID-19, uh, 3.4 million cases, uh, 240,000 deaths is this crazy phenomenon that is, has affected everyone on this planet. So I thought this podcast would be a good forum for us to discuss it. And has led a lot of us into a quarantine right now. And a lot of us get rest, restless at home. And uh, some of us even start weird podcasts with three foreigners. But uh, so what I want to talk to you guys first is about um, when did this actually become serious to you? Uh, Andrew, you're from Korea. When, when did COVID-19 become a very obvious problem yeah that's a good question i think it's it started from like mid-february i guess because the korea is very close to china and we have very close close relationship with china i think we haven't blocked any people from china yet still but as people as we realize that wherever people gather together the covid 19 spreads very fast so we started that kind of social distancing, you know, movement, and the government became so serious. Everybody, hey, so everybody right, right when, when when it was an uh, obvious problem, yeah. people started social distancing in like two months ago, in February. Uh, I I would say it it became it started like since March, you know, as government government didn't care in the beginning, but as we but we have the experience like from MERS or like the other you know this kind of disease. That's why we started we we try to you know deal with very seriously in the beginning actually i thought you'd remember did you remember i say people are overreact overreacting yeah when, when was that yeah i thought it was like people are you know i thought there's too much there in the beginning i thought i thought i was very healthy and i thought i didn't need any this kind of sort of distance thing so i just thought they're doing too much, but I realized that it is it is the best. It was it was actually necessary, and a lot of people consider that like South Korea actually was the best uh, strategy for for uh, handling this disease. Tina, would you agree to that? Yeah, I think that South Korea really implemented massive testing really early on, which is part of the reason why the response has been just so much better than 
the U.S. is and a lot of other countries. So what may have seemed like an overreaction was actually probably why their curve has really flattened now. So what, what are some of the things that they did to, uh, to lessen the curve so, so effectively? I think that they, while they didn't really have like a huge crisis to begin with, of like a huge number of cases, they made it really accessible for any person asymptomatic or not to get testing easily. Like you could even go into some sort of drive-through and get testing. And I think now they've done really good contact tracing too. Like if one person did have um, the virus, they really did like um, extensive contact tracing of every person that person was in contact with. Like we do that now here in the US. But South Korea really had great efforts in that to begin with. And um, I think now they there might be some things that are a bit weird. Like I've heard that there's some sort of like app that people use. Uh, I don't know about this as much. Maybe someone else can chime in. But I think that they trace the disease really well. Andrew, is this common? Like, uh, do, do a lot of people that you know actually got tested and is, is it really easy for, for someone in South Korea to get tested from your experiences? You mean, is it, is it very common to get tested mm -hmm. for COVID-19? If you have an, any symptom, any little symptom like a fever or if you cough and you, if, you go, if you go to the doctor and if he prescribes you, then you will you get a test. And so. The process is if you have a symptom, you go to a doctor. Yeah, just, yeah. Is, is it really quick to go to a doctor? Do you have to make an appointment or like could you just go the same day if you have the fever? You, you, you don't have to make an appointment. You can just walk in to, the, walk in to see, a, see a doctor and take a test. And if, if so, you are so it's diagnosed, it's as simple as like getting a haircut. Directly so go to the, the, yeah, just walk very, in. very easy and cute. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the one thing that the government did do well in this COVID 19 is that they open all the information. If you are diagnosed and suddenly you will meet some government people and interview them and they open all the places and that I visited previously and they they you know send message to everybody in that area. Okay, this guy was that for example if I was diagnosed as mm -hmm. COVID nineteen and and I have to reveal every every meaning where I've been and who I work with, who I talk with. So, and it is revealed public so people can check it. And if anybody was with me, they, they should report to the government. It, it, it's so, it was like a communist country <laughs> for a while. <laughs> but not but like, for a good not cause though, right? Yeah. yeah. That's why communism became so popular in the first place, right? <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, I think. But so, good. so you'll get a I notification. Think, yeah. Okay, so like the, the scenario is, uh, if if you have COVID nineteen and then you're in Korea, uh, the government will send a notification to everybody that you've been around to get tested. Yeah, yeah, That's a pretty effective area. solution. Yeah, so, so in Korea, if you if you have a Korean cell phone, you are you have to get an emergency text from the government. Do you have that kind of emergency texting system? No, I only get texts if, uh, if the kid gets ca uh, kidnapped. It's called the Amber uh, uh, Gary, how are, how are they handling it in, uh, in Ireland? Most yeah. um, for Ireland, it's uh, similar in the sense that we reacted slightly earlier than our European neighbours. So we have the advantage of our Prime Minister being a medical doctor. And that seems to have given us quite a lot of advantage. And our country seems to have listened and believed the, the advice of the government. 
and really effectively more than I ever would have believed people are following the rules and getting involved and doing it right. So it seems to work quite well in, in regards to that people are following the rules. Our cases still grow by hundreds every day, our deaths by hundreds, cases by a couple of hundreds. Um, but we definitely feel like we're doing okay. And then it's, I don't know, my parents are happy that things are get looking better, but everyone's locked down. We're limited to two kilometers um, for exercise, slightly longer for shopping, and the whole world is basically stopped. Sorry, what about the two, two kilometer? So that's our list. We can only go two kilometers from your house, your residence, to do exercise oh. <laughs> and to leave. So a cop will pull oh, you okay. over and look at your driver's license and yep. see uh, how they far you live you, from that spot. It's quite regular to be asked ah. by the police um, where you're going and why you're going somewhere. Um, and if your reason isn't good enough, they'll tell you to turn around. But that's just for exercise, though, right? You can drive to a grocery store. That's two it, miles grocery away. stores is a good reason to go further, but that's probably the only reason. Maybe drugs, uh, maybe to go to the hospital, but not much other reasons are good enough unless you're an essential worker. Jonathan, you're currently in, in Chile. Are they, are they on a lockdown right now? Because I'm not too familiar with what, what's, what, what the normalcy is in South America. Well, right now, it's um, kind of odd, actually. They're kind of putting certain neighborhoods that have had the highest rates of effect under lockdown, under you know, quarantine, whereas others are not. And I assume that's obviously to try and keep uh, people able to, to pretty much earn their living, I guess, to, you know, to have their businesses, you know, um, continue operating. So that's, that's happened, actually. So it's kind of been alternating between uh, neighborhoods because of uh, for lockdown. Uh, although uh, from 10 o'clock at night to 5 in the morning, they have a uh, curfew. So it's, it's been like that from the start. How it is right now? Is that uh, is that is, would you say Chile is, is is one of the more safer places in in South America, or like uh, doing doing more for this disease, or is it is it the norm to to have these kind um, of policies? I mean, so on a whole, I'd say that I mean, our neighbors, Argentina, actually had you know implemented a full lockdown from day one, uh, and so obviously their cases have been a lot lower than ours. Although it's kind of hard to really say for sure because. Um, like just for example, in the past couple of days over here, they've already ramped up testing, even I think by double the amount from like four or five thousand a day to like about nine, I guess. And so uh, the cases have then also increased, and they've also kind of changed their rubric by which to classify a, a, a case. So they've already included asymptomatic cases as well in the last couple of days. So it's obviously been a big spike in, in them. But um, in terms of handling, I guess that just because economically speaking as well, uh, Chile has always been one of the better, if not the best sort of country uh, in terms of how it's doing in, in the whole continent. So I think it's for the most part okay. But then again, that's just all relative, right? Because it's still pretty scary to see how, uh, you know, the hundreds of cases still being detected every day, but on average about 10 people dying every day. And uh, so it was still not out, out yet from, from the virus. Jonathan, you're in, you're in a really unique situation because you are someone with an Asian face, like you, you're Asian, and you live in a yeah. non-Asian country. Is that is that difficult for you <laughs> during this this uh, this disease? Depends, depends on where you go, but over here uh, <laughs> it's been alright actually. Well, I mean, everywhere you go, they obviously look at me and think I'm from China, <laughs> Chinese and all. Uh, thanks very much, great grandparents. But um, but over here it's it's been alright. Um, at the start, you know, one might assume that you know people would be a bit sort of wary, but honestly, I haven't really felt that as much. And um, mm. I think a good thing that the Chinese government's also you know donating a lot of, a lot of these um breathing machines. <laughs> A new shipment just came in like the day before, so uh, they're pretty happy about that. <laughs> but, so that's uh, good for now. your your PR. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, but I haven't really felt that, honestly. Not like, you know, I guess the stories that have come up from the States, right, with Asian Americans and Australians. So I haven't really felt that here, to be honest. So, uh, Tina, could you describe uh, how we're handling it here in San Francisco compared to maybe the rest of the, the United States? Sure. So San Francisco was one of the first major cities that, to go on complete lockdown. Mayor London Breed issued some a statement I think early March, maybe March 16th. Um, and it, at, the, at the time, it seemed pretty early, but in retrospect, it um, is probably one of the reasons why we have not really overwhelmed the medical facilities at all. Here in San Francisco, our hospitals are not at full, anywhere near full capacity. So that's been good. So this is in comparison to like like New York, which is has like a like a massive problem right now, and is the reason why they might have more uh, cases and the hospitals are fuller is because they didn't use the same strategy as San Francisco. I think okay in New York they did shut down a little bit later, like restaurants and such were still open. I think New York is also a complicated city because it is so densely populated and there's so much foreign foreign visitors like I think the virus itself that has spread so much in New York has not uh, studying it evolutionarily it's more likely that it's come from Europe uh, than it's come from China so I think it's a different story in New York like I think latest estimates say that nearly 20 percent of New Yorkers might have been affected by the virus I think it's just a problem of them kind of delaying their shutdown by maybe a week or two, but also just the fact that there's so much travel in and out and it's so densely populated, it's really hard to avoid contact. That does make a lot of sense. So Gary, do you do you have a, a perspective on, on like how America is handling COVID-19? For, for me, it's um, biased by my location being in Canada. And so the the biggest, the first notification we had was when Washington state was the one that was the most chaos in the U S and because that was so close to us here in BC and Vancouver, there was a lot of concern about that from that point on, it kind of started to escalate and just seemed to be out of control. Whereas here things were shutting down, things were still open south of the border from here. And it was just kind of a scary difference, differentiation. Um, and then kind of the overreactions that seemed to occur like, towards Canada and shutting that border was quite um, scary from this perspective, being this close to that border. And it's still kind of a concern for BC that cases will come up from the border, um, even though it's mostly shut at this stage. But it's the thing that scares us the most is probably the protests and the desire for people to come out of this lockdown with no collective sense of that it's important, the, the value of the lockdown and the reasons for why you went into lockdown haven't changed yet and it kind of scares us in that regard because you see small pockets of it here and you're afraid that the influence from down there would come up here as well. So it's it's not very common like you see small pockets of, of protesting people trying to get back to work but you would say most of uh, of Canada where you live is is pretty accepting of, of the quarantine in place right now. At least here in BC and in Vancouver, definitely, and the other major cities that I have most of my experience of, um, there's definitely more um, more rural areas and kind of areas that have been less affected that are much more driving to get back to normal. But here, definitely in BC, people are very aware. 
we never really went into full lockdown, so we still have the advantage and a lot of more freedoms than, let's say, Ireland or um, some of these U.S. cities where we st- most things are still open here, um, just with a emphasis on social distancing. And the celebrity that we have grown up is our public health officer, who's very much front and center stage um, here and kind of all over Canada. Dr. Bonnie Henry is the person everyone listens to and everyone talks about and everyone is like listening to her advice in a way that she's taken center stage and politicians have stepped back has been quite effective. So you're saying uh, in Canada, there's there's less shutdowns, but there's just practicing a social distancing. So but here, the schools here, are still shut down and are restaurants shut down over there? Restaurants are takeaway only, yes. So they're shut down, schools are shut down. But BC is the exemption. So compared to the rest of Canada, we're quite successful because the spring break was later here. Um, so people traveled a lot less. Whereas in Ontario and Quebec, it was for a month earlier. And so many people went to Europe and brought disease back. And it's very much, you can see the spike that came from the spring break. Whereas the spring break here, basically everything was shut down by the time it came here. So it was less likely that people traveled. Um, and I can kind of see that scale even in my own personal travel where two weeks before we went into kind of shutdown, I was at a 60,000 rugby sevens competition with like many, many people. And then the following weekend I was on a ski holiday. And then by that Tuesday, it was St. Patrick's Day and there was no pubs open and all the ski slopes were shut. So it's, you can really see that escalation very quickly here. So what I'm trying to get the root into the root of is like why people are protesting. And in America, I think generally it's because they probably have a job that like if if you if you're quarantined, you can't go to and then you lose your salary, which is a massive issue for a lot of Americans. Like their their survival depends on the salary that out of nowhere you can no longer get. But in Canada, it's like you don't see too many protests. And I'm trying to understand like why why that is. Don't a lot of people lose their jobs too because of, of this virus in, in Canada? Yeah, but there's a lot of supports. And so the government are very quick acting here and the federal government has given people money quickly and people are getting overpaid. And you hear a lot of stories of people are getting more than they applied for. And it's this kind of trust that the government will rectify itself in the end, but they will give you the money in that kind of trust system um, earlier. You don't so what are, what are they giving out in Canada? It was like uh, 2000 a month or something, or was it a one-time payment? It's 2,000 a month um, regular, and then the province is given another 1,000. And the, the numbers kind of vary based on your original pay, and it's quite complicated, but it's, there is supports there, and it's coming quicker than people expected. So the government is oh. acting quickly, and that's helpful. But in Wait, the case is it for it, everybody? For everyone that's entitled to it. So there's different, wow. um, different stuff. But our whole hospitality industry here basically collapsed, and so... Other immigrants, such as myself, most of them went home if they were in those kind of fields that closed. So that's also another thing that happened was that so many people left. This is Vancouver in particular, the city of immigrants. And so many people I know left when they lost their job and their certainty and went back to their home country. And so that probably does help the system to some degree. It's not under as much pressure. So, uh, Tina, I don't want to get too political on you, but like, what do you think about how uh, the United States supported people? during this, this crisis. I think it was handing out a $1,200 stimulus to the population who makes under like uh, like 75K, right? Right, I think individuals who make under 75K get $1,200 stimulus checks. And then if you're in a two income family, if you make under 150,000, you'll get like 2,400 and then another $500 per child. But 
for now, we've only seen this as a one-time payment. And I think surveys show that almost all Americans think that's not enough. Americans, according to surveys, can really only pay one month's rent and can't, don't have enough savings after that uh, to keep living. So I think um, the consensus is that it's clearly not enough. I think there's some good small business loans and stimuluses going out, but really overall, I think there's a lot of dissatisfaction with how the government has handled this and there's a desperate need for some sort of economic support. Yeah, I think uh, the, the stimulus package was actually like two, $2 trillion, but I think only a fourth of it actually went to to America, to like actual citizens. A lot of it went to businesses and a lot of it assumingly went to small businesses, but that's, that's very questionable right now. Jonathan, how, how, is it, how are they handling people affected by this, maybe not being able to work in, in Chile? You touched on a good point before when you were saying how uh, you would expect anyways, I don't know if it's true, of people protesting because they need to work, or a lot of them actually uh, don't have the choice to stay at home to earn money. Because on that point, though, it's funny, I think that from what I heard anyways on the news about the protests in the States, um, I didn't actually get that being the message, right? I think it was most of them that I saw anyways in the protests were people that uh, just didn't want to have their First Amendment rights uh, trampled on <laughs> and felt that they had the right to go out and like, they should be told what to do because that, that was what, I don't know if it's true, again, uh, that was what I mostly heard. Whereas over here, it's true that um, they haven't really been protests per se. There was one I think that I heard of too, but really small ones. But it is true that, yes, uh, most of the people here actually earn a living from day to day. Uh, you know, they actually, people would sell things on the street, uh, whether it be food, whether it be, you know, material items and stuff. So um, it's really been tough, I guess, on most of these guys. But then in terms of support, which is what Gary talked about, uh, it has been increasingly better in that sense, uh, where support after support has been announced uh, through the government. And so um, people, are, I guess, are supposed to be able to access those things, whether it be through um, wage subsidies, uh, the ability to get loans for businesses, I guess, and have their, their current loans delayed because of repayment, whether it be, I guess, tax subsidies as well. So um, these, these things... But, but does that those. help the day-to-day -day worker in Chile, like someone so that is thing. just selling stuff to, to people on the street or something like that? Which is why they've been... I think the government hasn't taken a, a sort of case-by-case approach to it. So they announced uh, these subsidies for businesses first, and then they didn't announce um, subsidies for workers like these. Um, you know, we just wandering workers, meaning they, yeah, those who, you know, aren't officially, I guess, employed, they have a contract, they kind of just, you know, work, you know, on a freelance basis, or these people that below a certain bracket, you know, of income. So it's been getting more and more, it's more targeted, I would say. But then again, I don't know in terms of the specifics, because obviously I don't really, I can't really access them anyway, and so I can't sort of, I don't know what, true. Um, how, how long they're going to have to wait. But at the same time, you know, you talk about social distancing, yeah, it's, it's also been preached every day, day in, day out here. And having said that, people are still, you know, having to line up outside of banks, outside of their, um, their, their like, I guess, employment insurance to claim that sort of uh, the money that they need right now, that they're on employment. So you see lines outside, you know, just going <laughs> around and around those buildings and people waiting for hours. So um, yeah, it's oh, kind wow. of a paradox actually, that bureaucracy is kind of holding the very, you know, measures being put in place back. Andrew, are they are they helping out people that were affected by by COVID nineteen by like losing their jobs in, in Korea? Are they giving out like social programs for that? Actually, I never heard of losing a job yet. The story yet, because in Korea it's really hard to fire people once you get a job. So, but but I I believe that there's some you know some workers who who live day by day, right? Day to day sellers. So. Yeah, they're, they're giving everybody money actually soon. 
from three hundred dollars to eight hundred dollars. But I don't think it will be helpful for those who lose their job. If 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 they are living day by day, but which it means that they are living in relatively poor condition and not financially prepared. So I'm not sure if this kind of giving just money, just money. Okay, you live by yourself. I don't think it will be the right method to help them. I think if you want to really help them, it's important to give them a job, that stable job that but can. But there's just such a short supply of jobs, day day, especially when there's a. Something that's causing people to have to stay at home. Yeah, There's not true, much that's, stimulation that's, to the economy. But yeah, Andrew, uh, dilemma, it's, yeah. it's really interesting because uh, we were discussing this last week. But you you said that where you live in Seoul, businesses are 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 coming back. You can actually dine at restaurants again. When when yeah, has that started? Actually, yeah, actually, I don't know. It's been on two weeks, two weeks, one week or two weeks. Actually, I didn't care care a lot about that kind of social distancing distancing. Actually. So I was not afraid of the, the virus at all, but I dare to go to everywhere, the bars, and I hang out with my friends. I went to restaurant. Actually, I'm going to my friend's wedding after after we finish it. Yeah, so I'm gonna say by the way, yeah. you say you, you you don't care, but like, how many masks did you buy though? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a really good question. Can you get a mask easily, or is it really, really difficult for you to get it? I heard that in the states, the the price of the mask rises. So much, right? Tina, you want to answer that? Yeah, I think here it's very discouraged to get a medical grade mask because there are limitations for actual people who work in the medical field. There's a shortage of gowns and masks. So there's been even a lot mask. of yeah, even masks. So there's been a lot of encouragement to so yeah, we don't have those aren't that expensive <laughs> or they're very expensive. I just, um, really? Yeah. Andrew Jackie's showing his cool mask. But so there's been a lot of encouragement here to like sew your own cloth mask or just wear a bandana or something and tie it around <laughs> your face. It's better than nothing. So yeah, definitely something better than nothing. I heard a good analogy, which is like if someone pees on your leg, if you're not wearing pants, you're definitely going to get pee on your leg. But say you're wearing pants, you're definitely going to get less pee on your leg. But if the other person who's peeing is also wearing pants, like, you're definitely going to get less pee on your leg. You might not get any. Jonathan, so. you had a lot of experience in this uh, metaphor during college, right? Like, paying on people or being peed on? Oh, people. you know, a little, little column A, column B. But Andrew, so, what, like, in, like okay. I'm very fascinated by Korea. So, like, it, it seems like everything is, is more or less normal, except everyone wears a mask now. Is that, is that fair to say? Uh, pe- people are wearing masks, but in the beginning, it is really difficult to get it. So government stopped people buying it in the shop, and they forced enforced them to to buy. You, you can buy a mask when so we, we divide people by their birthday first year. So if I were born in eight eighty eight, so which end yeah, so you can only get a mask yeah. during a, a certain day of the week. But like currently now, um, yeah, only, only like are all yeah. the businesses open yeah. now? And, and yeah, the only difference is everyone is wearing a mask. Yeah, like are, exactly. are universities, are schools open now? Oh, that's, we opened through the online. So they're going to have a lecture like us through Zoom or through, the, you know, through some kind of application. They are taking the kind of online, they open like online class, like America did. But I heard that the school will start offline class 
next week from next week or the next the week after next week so next week is gonna be a very big big like big transition day, week. big week for korea too because we're gonna transition yeah because we are gonna start the offline class which you know in the class you have to sit together next to each other and very is it's very easy to infect the virus so we are very worried because you know do you know what happened in singapore what happened in singapore because they 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 opened that offline class because they thought that the virus has gone. But as soon as they started it, started a class and the virus spread again. So they stopped all the offline class and to go back and forth. And so we are very worried. We don't want to be a next Singapore case. So, so the plan so in Korea cautious. is to open schools yeah. like completely next week, like with with full classes, with kids sitting next to each other and everything. Yeah, because they're every day they're nowadays days there's uh, less than ten people getting uh, diagnosed as a COVID nineteen. So nine or eight people yesterday. It means that so we think not only government but people think that is quite safe. Well, actually, this is the holiday period in Korea, and a lot of people, a lot of people travel to to the other to the to other cities. And I heard that in some provinces. The hotel book ratio is over ninety-seven percent. So, so there's still a lot of traveling, people, even with all these issues here. He, I think people are very, you know, I don't. People feel secure compared to the to March. People think people are, you know, being stuck at home for a long time and social distancing. You said there's only ten new cases in in Korea yesterday or something like that. The whole yes. country. Yes. That's that's and and because of that, that's why you see more. You know, open restaurants. You can you can go out socially more in Korea. Tina, would you say that the only way for America to get back to to normalcy, something like like what what Korea is doing now, is if the new cases number is that low? I think that yeah, I think we would have to wait for there to be at least fourteen days of very low cases or near zero. But obviously, it's not. Each governor of each state can sort of decide their own reopening. So it's very risky because each person in the state can easily travel to another state. So I think that um, in the U.S. it's going to be a lot harder to get to that level just because we have so many different jurisdictions that are all sovereign. And the governors of, like, say, Georgia have already opened, like, barbershops and nail salons and everything so i think it's going to be tricky i don't know when is the time we can have like nationwide opening so it's going to be uh trickle or like it's going to be open state by state it's not going to be like one national rule probably right right i think it's going to be state by state and hopefully there's some accelerated efforts to get a vaccine or some good anti antibody testing so one of those two things has to be really reliable and I think um, that's what we have to hope for. But the best case scenario for a vaccine is, is at least a year, 18 months away. Is that fair to say? I think there are some accelerated efforts. Like I think the CDC is saying they're relaxing some of their standards. And um, I think the University of Oxford has a study that they're trying to get a vaccine out by the end of this year. Uh, I think it does require some loosening of the restrictions. Uh, there might even be some ethical issues involved, like maybe intentionally exposing some people in order to demonstrate efficacy, which could be a real ethical sticking point. 
but I know that there's really a global effort and in the U.S. sort of like a Manhattan project of like we really need to move quickly on this because obviously people realize that this is something that if we open things up it could definitely explode again in the fall and maybe overlap with flu season and into 2021 and maybe even further if we do lax or we do relax restrictions so I think that that's why there's so much emphasis on trying to get a vaccine really quickly, even if it means sacrificing some of our usual standards on animal testing and human testing. So you, you mentioned that there's like a Manhattan Project style, of re- like are, are actually the best scientists working on this together? Is this what their sole focus on is right now? I think there are an estimated 100 groups worldwide who are trying to develop a vaccine across a lot of different academic centers. And I think that um, there's some, the government is really trying to encourage innovation and communication among these groups to really get high quality antibody tests um, and vaccine development and possible drugs like the, the Gilead one that's been popular in the U.S. or gaining popularity. I think that these initial trials show that there are some things that might be more promising. So really, it has to be sort of like a war on a lot of different fronts where you just have to encourage a lot of different groups to innovate across the world to come up with solutions. So I'll give this question to Jonathan. Do you you think this is a very unique thing because the whole world is trying to solve something together? I don't think this has ever happened before. I was not born during the Spanish plague. I don't know what they did over that time. <laughs> I don't know what the world did. Unique, of course, I think, uh, at least from our generation's point of view, or even our parents, you know, um, it definitely is an interesting time where, yeah, everyone sort of is able to put every other sort of difference aside and focus on and on uh, the common enemy. Like, like that's how that's been quote, anyways, the common enemy of this virus. Uh, and it's really interesting how even, for example, the uh, French president <laughs> so intelligently proposed this idea of war just, you know, taking a break now like everyone's sort of pause their wars you know <laughs> let's just focus on this one thing so um off of that yeah uh it definitely is an interesting time um hope not to well yeah it's again pros and cons and only like it's, it's good to see everyone be on the same page being that it's virtually impossible to achieve anyways all around the world uh, but at the same time you know um to have this sort of phenomenon happen for us to get on the same page is something that has it has it at all made you change your priorities at all like make you think what's important in your life more? Definitely. I mean, on a personal and professional level, of course, I would say that the starters of being lucky enough to be able to, I guess, not or to have money in the bank to not worry as much about the immediate future, having to eat today, tomorrow, the day after, that I must say I'm grateful for. And of course, you know, the education that I've had, blah, blah, blah. But, um, but yeah, it definitely has, I hope anyways, made everyone sort of reconsider um, the path on which they're on what's most important to them and, you know, kind of recalibrate their priorities, huh? I don't know if the other people, the other ones in this group have done the same or not, but definitely for me, yes, I have done that. Gary, has your perspective on life changed because of, of, of COVID? Um, certainly, there's definitely a concern. Um, uh, I'm thinking more about it like being abroad and living away from family and that kind of distance thing. Um, is quite a challenge at the moment. I'm in more contact with my family than I have been in years. Um, just regular phone calls, regular Skypes, but the distance is very, very apparent to me. And especially if something happens, it's very clear to me, that, like all of a sudden, the means of getting home that I always kind of trusted existed have disappeared. 
And that's kind of a new thing that I had never really considered when moving abroad, that possibly I would be trapped in one place, um, that there wouldn't be an exit strategy, um, that we're at a stage where it was also even just a choice to stay here. There was a point where you could have made the decision to go home and kind of be safe at home. And I chose to stay here. And now the opportunity to go home is almost gone. And it's kind of a scary realization that I never felt I was going to face. Um, it's also made me question the importance of work and the importance of the balance of work and having a secure job and the value of that. And then the choice to live alone becomes very apparent um, when you're quarantined on your own in your own house. So, so when, when the quarantine started in, in Vancouver, where you live, you felt like you can handle it. You felt like you could just stay at, at your house by yourself. I kind of didn't envision it to be as long as it is now. And I, I, I maybe foolishly, um, maybe, maybe this was ignorance, um, but I just assumed it would be only a month or so. But now I don't see an end. And that's kind of yeah, same, yeah. still scary. It's still, um, and I'm not sure. Like, well, it'll, we'll survive, but it's just kind of, it's something that I never really envisioned moving here as being the challenge. I suppose no one envisioned this, but for me, it's, it's quite apparent that um, I really didn't consider this type of thing. Now, I am still still have an income. If I went home, to, if I abandoned to go home to Ireland two months ago, I would probably be unemployed, living in my parents' house, going crazy as well. So I think there's challenges in every situation. So, so I, I think this really impacts people that, that live alone, like you, Gary. Um, not, not to say that you're alone or anything, but... But, but no, it's uh, true. It's, I, I don't talk to people in real life um, very much anymore. Now, my digital social life has increased incredibly, but my in-person and like a lot of my socialization is kind of act, group activities, group going to the pub, um, hiking, all these things that are just gone. And now my life is just work and post-work time and it's yeah, just it's that very hard is... to distinguish yeah, differences in, in your time of day. Like I, I work from home as well and and as soon as I'm done from work, like there's no difference than when I was at work. And it's... screen time. You're just on the screen the whole time. Yeah, exactly. Like, like both my socialization with my family is on the screen. My work is on the screen. And there's no meetings that are breaks or anything like that. So you never really leave a screen um, until I go out and run. I've, my running has increased greatly, um, but that's just as a mental health coping mechanism, I think, more than anything else. Small. Tina, how, how are you doing? You you also live by yourself, right? I do. How how, yeah. how, how are you doing uh, coping with with all the all the social distancing? It's pretty rough. As someone who likes interacting with people face to face and is also an introvert at the same time, I think there's only so much one can take of being in a studio apartment in San Francisco. But luckily, right before this, I had adopted a cat, so that's been good. <laughs> I have been having a lot of cat bonding time. I think my cat's pretty sick of me. But I think, yeah, I, as others were saying, as Gary was, was saying, it's tough, but I think that it, it's been good that we have increased empathy for each other and each other's unique circumstances. I don't think anyone's really just crushing the quarantine and having the time of their lives. Uh, Jeff Bezos is. <laughs> is he? Amazon so stock Tina, is great right now. Tina, it's a, you, you don't go to school anymore, right? So our lab is pretty much shut down except for a skeleton crew. And it's been tough because medical students are 
considered somewhat liabilities, so we're not really allowed in the clinic anymore. So there's a lot of online classes over Zoom. I think we're all suffering a bit of Zoom fatigue. And then I've been doing some research on the virus, actually, in the spare time with another lab group, because really the only research that can be conducted full speed is related to the virus right now. What, what do you think happens in the future? Because the, the world is not going to be the same out of this virus. I think there's going to be massive changes to the economy, massive changes to education, massive changes to, to social interactions even. Firstly, I think a lot of jobs are not coming back. Like a, a lot of, like we live in San Francisco, Tina and I, and I was walking down the street on, on the main, main street in my neighborhood and 75% of the, the restaurants are closed. And restaurants are already tough business to, to be in. And I'm assuming that a lot of them are, are going to be closed as well forever, uh, even after the disease is, uh, even if we have a vaccine or whatever. What do you think is going to happen to all these, these workers that, are, that just won't have jobs anymore? Who's the most economically minded person in this conversation? Jonathan? What? <laughs> Al- Alvaro. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the guy that again, like I should remind you, went uh spent the whole hour just to walk out to get money out from the ATM to save me two bucks, man. I got started by our economist friend by um having non valuable time, <laughs> but uh but fine, I I'll fake it, so I'll make it. Uh, if I if I didn't learn anything, though, I also obviously have been reading up on, on you know this phenomenon and uh, looking at how yes our world's going to change and what industries we have already been affected and what have not actually been affected but have been thriving off of this um i mean you mentioned joe um what's his name bezos there you go online yeah. commerce right definitely uh you know cashing on this it is it is true yeah some industries um have thrived on this and actually would you know probably do, do be all right and maybe even do better but at the same time when you say that you know restaurants those that have to close down and, and probably won't open up again i'm not i don't know i think i'm not too uh not too quick to assume that so what, what I would compare this to, like, we, we lived our lives until the last three months, like, in a certain way. And then because, because of the disease, we, we stay at home. And then we realize we, we don't need certain things in our life that much. Like, I haven't been to a restaurant in a while because I realized I could probably just cook. It's safer. I have more control on the cooking, so I know where it came from and everything. You might realize that there are some luxuries that you don't need as well. Like there, there are probably some items that people are not going to buy right now because they're they're afraid of like what if I get laid off tomorrow? What if the next paycheck doesn't come? So I think there's a a big impact in the economy here. Yeah, so I think consumer choice is definitely going to be under scrutiny, right? Um, throughout this whole process and definitely more after. But I think one has a diff- different shape between necessary items, necessary goods that you spend your money on versus activities, right? That I think people still love to resume after this whole thing. Right. So when I talk about social activities, talk about going to eat at restaurants, I don't think that that would actually be eradicated from this virus. I think it's definitely going to come back. It's just a matter of when. Um, but then, of course, the restaurants are now thinking about how they would, you know, render the services. So we talk about where um, I mean, we both mentioned the online component, definitely leveraging the internet. So you see a lot of them actually introducing delivery services, right? Uh, using that as a way to keep going now. But I mean, over here, for instance, kitchens are actually still open. A lot of these restaurants, and they only do takeout or delivery. You see a lot more, obviously, uh, delivery drivers, uh, motorbike riders now. <laughs> and yeah, and Zoom is probably like a like a billion dollar company now. Yeah, like, it, it timed perfectly with this whole uh, disease. Yeah. I'm also very interested in like what's going to happen to education because um, a lot of kids are just take taking their classes online now. I, I I heard a story where like there's this like third grader, a little eight year old kid, 
she she started class at like eight o'clock she got all her work done by nine thirty. does it this like like working from home like prove all the inefficiencies in education tina you're a very educated person do you see a future where education is more online because of what we learned from this uh Yes, I think that there is definitely a possibility where a lot of education moves online. I'm currently trying to learn Python through an online code in place class at Stanford mm. right now. So that's been pretty cool because there's a lot of innovative ways to bring teaching online and still have small groups online. I just think that it's going to take a while for the motivation to catch up to the possibilities out here. Most people I talked to are still in college or taking a lot of classes are like very tired of taking online classes and they don't feel like it's worth their tuition and yeah that's an, that's a crazy thing too because you pay for like it's not not in your countries but in america colleges like the debt that you get from college is crazy for a good name university you probably pay 50k a year just to go there and now you don't even get the benefits of, of getting to live on campus or like walk around and stuff like that and all and you're still paying those tuitions so does this change the way that we even think about college too because like, what if we just change college to like online college now and make that more socially acceptable? And yeah, I saw news that I saw news that some students are gonna sue against their university because they're paying their tuition not only for the class but also but also for the you know in, in, interaction with the other friends or yeah, like it's a very other, other campus campus college. Yeah, yeah. So, I w- I would say that like. At the end of this, my, my dream is that like a bunch of Harvard professors decide, hey, we don't need a campus. We can we can just open our own college and then have the kids pay us straight up. And then you save a lot of money that way, because if you just paid for the classes, you paid the professor directly. The, the reason why college is so expensive in America is because there's a lot of administration to it. The money doesn't go to the professors or anything. And if, if you just pay the professors directly and you have a world class education, you got a bunch of Harvard professors, a bunch of Yale professors or like that, then uh, then, then you can save a lot of money and have a great education. But education is so, not just... so. Joseph University is going to come out next year because of this. But education is not just <laughs> the classes; it's the people you meet, it's the international experience you have. The fact that we all know each other from a university experience is probably the bigger value of the university than the piece of paper or the courses that are kind of. I, I think it depends on the person. Some some people probably like the reason they went through to a big university is because they wanted that alumni network they wanted to, to meet other students some of them are in it for just the education some kids at UCSD even stay stay in their room studied all day and their their goal was to get that degree their goal is probably further their education elsewhere but that's that's neither here or there um, what do you what do you think COVID does to the social interactions you think uh, hugs and handshakes are, are done Gary because um, I don't think I would ever hug you again yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it is an interesting concept because one of the things here that I find unique um, that doesn't exist in Ireland was, um, I do, this is a very Catholic example, but normally we shake hands in the middle of mass and here it's very much a kind of acknowledgement or a bow rather than a physical contact. And that was even before this crisis. So I think things like that where you actually have a physical interaction with a stranger is definitely going to be very limited. Um, I don't know how, like... Irish culture, Canadian culture, they're not particularly um, that interactive physically, but definitely it'd be very interesting to see how Southern European countries are affected, other countries like this. 
um, where it's much more about that physical interaction with people. It'll be interesting. But yeah, no, I don't think people are going to be kissing each other on their cheek anytime soon or even shaking hands seems... I would be uncomfortable in this current moment to do it. And, and I don't know and how when you go back. to the mass, do, do people share the same cup of wine? Is that a thing? Yeah. That's like also, that's also so that's thing. probably going to end, right? You got to get like 30 or I don't know how big a, a mass or is it maybe a hundred different cups of wine now? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, the church is going to have to hire a dishwasher at the end of this. Yep. It'll, it'll, it, those type of things will definitely be questioned. Even the, recep- the receiving of communion is um, the same person hands it out to you. Yeah, all these things are definitely going to be interesting how the world adjusts. Um, like, I think everyone's open to it. I'd never imagined that there'd be a time that I would be logging into digital mass every day or every every weekend, and here yeah. we are. Um, so I think people embrace it and change to adapt, but I don't think we'll be shaking hands anytime soon. Can I just say, yeah, so I uh, think on the cultural aspect, that's really interesting because um, in New Zealand, you know, the Maori, the indigenous population from the Maori, right, they, they, uh, have this very greedy people, which is called the Hongi. And it's actually where they touch foreheads and noses. And the point of this is actually to share their breath. <laughs> so I don't know huh? if they're probably going to do that in the next, I don't know, year or two. <laughs> I'm not sure about that, huh? But on, on that, Gary's point, it's kind of interesting. Why don't people just use the tongs and yeah, bring your own cups? And I don't know if that's a way to work around mass. Uh... <laughs> BYOB for, for mass. <laughs> oh. But uh, if I could just uh, say a side thing again on the uh, education part, it's really interesting because, um, yeah, because, you know, being a teacher as well, I guess if I could speak for the teachers you know, out there, having the parents now having to sort of get more involved, I think, than before, that kids' dedication is a brilliant thing. I'm happy. Uh, I'm not happy for the virus having done that. But <laughs> it's a great thing now that, you know, parents are sort of re-engaging if they haven't been enough in their kids' dedication. Seeing how uh, bloody tough it is, eh? <laughs> teachers to, to, you know, to deliver. And, well, I think um, it's, it's yeah. really tough for a parent that has to work as well. And like you, you're working from home and you have to teach your kid to make sure he logs into whatever Zoom class yeah. meeting he has. He finishes his but homework get, in an hour and a half, apparently, and then he has nothing else to do. It's probably going to annoy you, yeah. right? But I hope then maybe um, teachers' words will be bought, you know, now more than ever when, you know, when it comes to parent-teachers' interviews, you tell the kids, sorry, tell the parents about their kids and uh, it seems to still have to buy maybe. Or now that I think they're able to, Again, be more engaged, you know, sort of take first hand that responsibility of making sure they're learning. It's seeing, I think, in front of their own eyes how the kids are engaging with the material. I think it's, it's probably a good good thing to, to have parents. I mean, after all, it's their kids, isn't it? <laughs> but having said that, you're right about how it's different for each family, each household, how much they can do that. So I guess this brings me to our final question for today's discussion. Is, is there a silver lining to, to, <laughs> to COVID? I think, I think for me, it's just, it's, it just makes me care more about other people because you're always in your own bubble. And then you, you only kind of like think about yourself, but this is something that we all deal with together. And it, it really makes me think about like people that lose their jobs because of this, that, that might be, be struggling, might lose their, their, their house because of rent eventually. And it, it just makes me want to think of, of like a solution to, to, to all these, these issues. Do, do you guys have uh, the same feeling because, because of the disease? Yeah, as a, as a Korea, Korea, which get, which everything is normal and, Lots of people are getting their hopes back because lots of my friends who are preparing for their wedding, for example, for example, they postponed. But now in May, they started that kind of wedding ceremony again. And I, if I see their happy face from their worry, I will be very happy to see them. But uh, but there's only one, only one thing that I'm worried is the big government, as like George Orwell's like novel. 
So you're afraid that the government is going to take over because of yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I just sent you the the document about the Korean government. It said policy sensitive data such as the cellular GPS logs, credit card transaction logs, and camera footage are not collected for every confirmed patient. But it it means but it means that they have power. They can access to your GPS log or credit card logs every time they want, but they don't do this. I don't know after. So you don't want the Korean government knowing your your spending habits, Andrew? Are you buying something else? No. Why? Do you want? Do you want your government? Do you want Trump knows how you're spending your money? <laughs> where you been <laughs> watching you through CCTV? No. But government has the power to to do it, and everybody know that. And knows that the government can do anything if they want, if there is a reason. So that's one thing I'm worried. But yeah, we're talking about the hope. Okay, hope. As you can see in Korea. Everything gets normal, and people are going out, hang out with each other, and sure, it it takes some time and with some pain, but I'm sure you guys will get it as well. Just have some hope, believing in yeah, like, government. Besides a total, like a like a 1984 kind of government, I think I think there is a silver lining of like, I I hope this is true, but in the United States case, like we gotta get our our, our stuff together. We gotta realize this is a problem this is a bipartisan problem something that goes beyond democrats and republicans and we got to mm-hmm. figure out a solution that helps everybody and maybe because this did unite us even though there's some factions of the population that are obviously protesting but but this this this, this disease more or less united the entire country maybe there's um more of a chance to open discussion to figure out what's yeah. the solution to help everybody especially now that we know what who are the essential workers um, people who weren't probably treated as essential beforehand now have shown what we need to survive and who are these important people and maybe society will reward these people a bit more fairly such as nurses um, with appropriate payments whereas before it seemed to be cut 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 in these fields possibly there's hope that these people will be recognized for the efforts they put in and society will change and the protections that people need in society will be put in place and that the constant cutting of people's rights and people's ability and the government's ability to protect people will be challenged going forward is the hope. And I think on that, it's interesting because uh, I definitely see how off of what you guys are all saying, how, you know, the way we look at the other now is, is definitely going to be, you know, different here on end. It, you know, with, with the world getting more and more individualist, we go forward. I think it's definitely, I mean, sorry to snipe on the States, but maybe it's more so there. Uh, <laughs> Oh no, I think it's a, it's a global thing, I would say, right? Uh, but I think on that, it's then sort of good that this thing happens that made us step back and, and see that, you know, we don't exist in the vacuum. We don't, we can't sort of just ignore our fellow citizens, that, you know, whether they'd be doing better or worse. We're also now on the same level playing field, being affected by this the same way. So uh, whatever we do matters to the others in terms of affecting them and vice versa, right? So, uh, so yeah, when it comes down to, to that, it's good to kind of, yeah, recalibrate, huh? reposition everything and those essential workers yeah definitely yeah. to see how uh the other pillars of a society maybe it's time we kind of recognize them even the recognition treatment better so, um, tina do you see a silver lining for all for all this yeah. tina will there be any vaccines soon <laughs> I, I think it's can you send it to andrew's house yeah. <laughs> i think it'll take a while i'm i'm hope fingers crossed like everyone else but i i agree with what everyone else said i think it it feels good to be part of a global community in some sense and that we have each other's backs. 
I think that um, Andrew brought up some good points that there's going to be people like countries and governments that take advantage of social unrest and try to capitalize on this. We already see this in like Afghanistan right now and Israel, Israel and Russia to some extent. So I think we have to really wait. Like this one good thing is that we've kind of raised awareness for people who are sort of marginalized in a lot of places or are vulnerable people. And I think we are caring more about people we, who might have, we might not have cared about as much or might not have empathized with us much before, like people with mental health disorders, like obsessive compulsive disorder, they're really struggling right now, or people who are living with domestic violence. I think it also makes you practice gratitude gives us some hope that we can tackle other problems like climate change together in the future. I don't know. I, I think that there is a chance that we come out of this with just more global awareness. I know that uh, Joseph and I have both seen Hamilton in theaters and I sort of get the, uh, I, I miss the days when, you know, there could be a packed theater and everyone could feel really bonded over something. But I think that, you know, in the future, we gotta just hope for the best that we can all just, relate to each other better and help each other out well tina there is a packed theater and it's called the world and we we are all in this together and on that note it's time to end the show uh for jonathan gary andrew and tina my name is joseph and thanks for listening to foreigners talk american <laughs>